This is Archive Atlanta, episode 225, Soccer. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey everyone, happy Friday. I am so excited to bring you this week's special interview episode, which is all about Atlanta's soccer history. Patrick Sullivan is a professional historian, um, but also a soccer enthusiast, if it's not evident by the time you listen to this, which led him to researching the story of soccer's origin in Atlanta. And we talk about the sports development, the very first Scottish immigrants here, later Welsh and Irish that all brought the game to Atlanta, um, where and when these first matches were played, very big role that DeKalb County and Lithonia has in the story, uh, the rise and fall of organized league play, all the way to the arrival of the Atlanta Chiefs, and then through our current MLS team today, Atlanta United. My own personal soccer love bias aside, this was such an interesting story and you do not want to miss it. I'm back at New South's offices for the second time with Patrick Sullivan, um, but we're not talking about the context study and we're not talking about your work work. Like no. your paid work. This is your fun work. <laughs> this is my fun work. And yeah. I, I probably mentioned it when we were first here, but uh, I was like, I got to come back and talk to you about soccer. So, Well, first of all, I'd like to say thank you for having yeah, me. Yeah, no. And it's and great actually, to be back on Archive <laughs> Atlanta and great to see you again, Victoria. So and it, thank you know you. what? For those that didn't listen to that episode, tell us who you are. Sure. My name is Patrick Sullivan. Uh, I work as a historian here in uh, for a cultural resource firm um, in archaeology and preservation firm in Stone Mountain. Uh, as Victoria's, as you said, though, this has kind of been my fun research where I started delving into um, Atlanta's history with soccer. And a lot of this kind of piqued my interest. I grew up in Atlanta. I've always played. I played as a kid growing up. Um, I still watch the game. I'm a big fan. Um, but I kind of, when, when it was announced that we would be re- receiving an MLS team back in 2015, 2014, I guess. God, it's been that long. Yeah, wow. around that time. And you started to have digitization of newspapers appearing on a wider basis, so it was easier to kind of do the, yeah. the the research. And so I was just kind of curious, you know, to see how far back maybe the sport traced in Metro Atlanta beyond or earlier than the Atlanta Chiefs, which yes. started in 1967. Yeah, and I found out that uh, essentially what I started to dig is that the history of uh, soccer in metropolitan Atlanta uh, pretty much starts right here near where we are in Stone Mountain, and that's in Stone Mountain, and then further, a little bit further east in Lithonia. Really? Uh, in the granite industry. Wow. Uh, is what, um, what brought, I should say, the immigrants that really started playing the game here in metro Atlanta, and this would have been in the 1880s. In the 1880s? Yes, the 1880s. Wow. Okay, so let's... Let's start. So that's where the start, I think, from what I can tell, in Metro Atlanta, the 1880s, um, if we look in the southeast, I think, if we go a little bit broader in the southeast, I'm sure the game was probably being played um, in Birmingham around earlier, probably a few years earlier, Birmingham, Alabama, definitely in uh, New Orleans as well. And this is all coming because of immigrants. Immigration, yeah. Got it. Primarily, yeah. And this is going to be so when. Again, going a little bit further back, people who may not know, the the laws of the game were codified in London in 1863. Um, So that's where we have the break and we have association football starting, technically, the real, what we now today consider soccer in the United States. You started to see the the, the breaks of the old medieval game of 
what was football kind of or considered football uh, where basically people would run and kick and it was a scrum and they would kind of in the medieval times in probably throughout northern europe and parts of asia as well uh, there was a a game where you know you would play on usual holiday usually holidays a lot of times in in europe it would have been around lent um so they had the shrove tuesday games in 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 england still and they would play and it would be just the whole towns would come out and it was a lot of chaos it was sometimes it was it would be in 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 england they would outlaw the game because it was so violent and destructive of property so they would be running through the towns the idea was these games would occur over several days you had to carry a ball from one stick on one side of the town to the stick on the other side of the town to get your point um i think that's essentially the the long and short of it fascinating and it was and that was early medieval football okay and then out of that, they started to apply rules during the, you know, the um, pretty much during the 19th century with students, you know, as the, the students, they started to apply rules to the game. So you could carry the ball, you could kick the ball. Um, and then different schools in England, basically in Scotland, as we'll talk about, um, had their own ideas, whether you should carry the ball more or kick the ball more. So like and rugby so, versus yeah, and soccer. Yeah, that's when you start to see that break. Okay. And you have rugby um, and soccer kind of have the break. Um, and so uh, in 1863, you have basically the the start of soccer, I guess, or the, the, the break or the beginning of soccer. And so by the 1880s, though, we know that so about 20 years, okay. between 10 and 20 years, it was probably being played in the southeast with, okay. with immigration. Wow. So the people that are coming, let's let's go to Atlanta, eighteen eighties. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Who are these immigrants? And sure. What are they coming to do? So the the history of soccer in Atlanta is is I guess indirectly or maybe a little bit more directly tied to streetcar development, actually. Really. And so what you had in when you had the streetcar franchises originating in the eighteen seventies, these were originally mule cars, where the uh, the Peter Peters was one yeah, and, and Adair. Adair. Um, they had to receive a franchise to lay their track on the street from the city of Atlanta. Um, and so they would expand the mule cars. So it was basically at the time that would have been just track laid on an unpaved dirt slash mud road, depending on the climate. Um, as time, you know, and you start to have more and more franchisees and operators of streetcar lines occur in the city, the city said, well, listen, to receive a franchise, you have to do a, a level of improvement to the road. So that would be paving of maybe hard surfacing of your streetcar track. So it wouldn't be necessarily the entire road, but there would be an improvement to your section of the the track on the road so that was a requirement for to operate a streetcar franchise and one of the people that was in charge of that was William Venable but William Venable was a roads commissioner for the city of Atlanta oh. and he realized well heck so these streetcar companies are going to have to hard surface pave their section of street i know of a you had quarrying going on at Stone Mountain since the civil war or after the civil war but he realized that there was a growth industry and materials there, and he and his brother Sam Venable purchased Stone Mountain for quarry operations around in the late 1870s. And so that's when you start to see large-scale industrial quarrying begin in Stone Mountain on the side of the mountain. It was to pave Atlanta streets. Yes, that I was originally. And then you had that. some structural stone as well. Yeah. So, so structural granite for bridges or buildings. Um, but so that's the 1870s. For the paving of streets, a lot of people will you'll see in in and around Atlanta. I know there's a good section if you're ever by El Tesoro and Edgewood. There's an exposed part of the old streetcar tracks and the exposed paving. People call it uh, cobblestones sometimes, yeah, but it's Belgian block. It's Belgian block yeah. granite, and that all comes from Lithonia. Well, some originally it started in Stone Mountain, but most of it come from comes from Lithonia, and that's nice. It's not granite. 
Nice is nicer. It's a little harder, so it's better for street paving applications. Okay. Um, and so when they realized, when they really moved into what's a lucrative part of their business, which was street paving block, what they did is they uh, started to hire immigration agents to go to Scotland, um, in particular Aberdeen, which was known as the Granite City in Scotland. It's oh. on the northeast coast of Scotland. Uh, there's the Rubislaw quarries in Scotland, um, which basically paved all of the UK and most of Europe came out of a lot of the really? granite from that area of, of, of Scotland. So they were hiring some of the best paving oh, block okay. cutters in the world to come and to cut paving block here in DeKalb County. And so by 1883 is when some of the first Scots start arriving um, primarily kind of it's the it's the, the old immigration model where they would maybe come it would be single men come work for a season go back maybe eventually bring their family over um, but these guys were highly skilled they um, were Scottish again mostly from Aberdeen or the Aberdeen area um, and they could produce uniform consistently sized block relatively quickly and they considered themselves highly skilled and the thing is, I think that the Venable brothers, Sam and William Venable, they owned Stone Mountain. So originally the quarrying operations began there, as I said. Then they eventually transfer over to Lithonia for the... Per- oh. So these guys started coming over in the 1880s is what we have. They say by 1886, um, there's about 400 uh, Scottish um, paving block cutters uh, in DeKalb County. And um, they were very good like i said at what they did i think the two things there was a few things that venable and i'm sure a few other locals didn't uh expect with the scots coming over is they were uh they they liked to drink so this was a dry <laughs> county um, they did not yeah. really respect um blue laws as far regarding alcohol um and they were also very uh, they liked sport so uh, the scots historically will be they would be very involved in establishing uh, like kind of like field day events, usually around holidays. Yes, so they it would, would be, have like a picnic, yeah. and then they would do. That's yes. what I was, cause when I Running, did the Scottish jumping, episode. Coits, yeah. I guess is how you pronounce it. It's like a. It's kind of like a horseshoes were big, and then they would. I don't have any record of organized games during those events. My guess is yes, that did occur, um, but they would play soccer as well. And the oh. Scots really. Um, In the United States, definitely in South America, I think, you know, again, it's, you know, people have typically or historically said, oh, soccer is an English game. I think there's a conflation of English with British. Mm. It's really the Scots who are responsible for exporting soccer throughout the world. Um, They're the ones. They did it here. They did it throughout the Southeast. I think there's a good case to say they made it, you know, all of the soccer centers in and around the United States. But then if you go down into South America and Argentina, Uruguay, uh, a lot of those soccer powerhouses, it was primarily the Scots that really? were the ones that brought, brought wow, the game to Oh, I did areas, not so. think of that. That's fascinating. Yeah, so the same was true here. Um, you had the Scottish from Aberdeen coming. By Probably by the 1890s, there's another group that starts to come into DeKalb County, and they're also very instrumental, instrumental in the, excuse me, the soccer leagues, which is uh, a number of Welsh uh, granite and paving block cutters from Penmanmar, Wales which is on the northern coast of Wales, or northern Wales, kind of near Liverpool. And they are coming at a different time? A, different, a little bit later. Oh, okay. So, but you had, so predominantly you had the Aberdeen Scots, and then you start to have some uh, Welsh okay. paving block cutters arrive in the 1890s, probably early 1900s as well. And is this when they start, they're like, ooh, you know soccer, I know soccer. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. So they all love soccer. So, yeah, so again, so 
by the 1880s, we know that the, the Scots are coming to Lithonia to work in the, uh, the Venables granite quarries. Um, and then the first record we have of them really playing is in 1892. There's going to be a big St. Patrick's Day parade and celebrations. And in the pages of the uh, Atlanta Constitution, some of the uh, one of the members of the um, Hibernian Benevolent Society, which is still the still here. My dad used to be the president of the group. Really? Um, yeah, they they were the ones that put on the the parade. Um, they issued a uh, a challenge to the Scots in DeKalb County to play a game of football. And um, because they knew they were well known for playing for playing football, and the Scots' reply was Fairly Bomb, who was a paving block cutter, uh, Scottish. He later became a, uh, a reverend a minister, but he responds in the pages in the classified, saying, "Yeah, we'll play. We would love to come and play you in Atlanta, but we need to play by the association rules. Is how we play, oh. and we don't play any other way." And the Irish said, well, we like to catch the ball still, Oh, which is kind of, and I'm reading this, this is more, so it shows, we talked about the, the codification of the laws of the game. There was still a fluidity occurring between how football was played. So even in this time, you're saying football, yes. it may mean different things. Right. And so American football is not what we consider American football to be at that point either in the 1890s. I mean, that would change as well. Um, and so what the Irish were talking about to my ears and what I, or to my eyes, I guess, if I'm reading it, is that they're talking more of like a Gaelic football. People may be more familiar with like an Australian rules football. It's a little bit, they're kind of somewhat similar. So you can kick the ball forward and catch it. Um, you can't really, you can run with it, but you have to kick it back into your hands or you have to punch with your hand. You can't throw it forward. So it's kind of all, I mean, they're all like cousins, yeah. but it's not the same. So <laughs> I... So that was how the Irish wanted to play. The Scots said, no, we want to play the association rules. But both of them agreed. And it was pretty funny. They said, well, we don't want to play American football because that's boring and we hate it. So they did say they agreed with that. Um, I don't have any record of the game actually occurring. I think they had a full slate of activities. So um, there was the expectation that maybe it would be postponed. Maybe it happened. I, I have not found any Where Where uh, were they going to play? Uh, the game was going to be played, I think they said... I want to say at Piedmont Park, wow. but I could be wrong. Um, I have to look back on that, but it would have been played in Atlanta. Okay. But that's not the beginning of the soccer league in Atlanta that we would then really organize soccer, I would consider. I mean, these would have been pickup games yeah. in the, the quarry camps in and around here at the time. Um, but an organized soccer league would not occur in Atlanta until the turn of the century. Actually, the, the in about in 1906-07 was the start. Okay. And there were a few factors involved in that. So you had the Scottish community of paving block cutters living in DeKalb County. In 1906, the state of Georgia, um, around 1905, the state of Georgia started, what they wanted to do was implement an uh, immigration program. Um, you had a number of immigrants obviously pouring into the Northeast at this time, but these were uh, you the know, wrong kind. The wrong kind for Georgia state or officials. Or yeah, these Catholic. were Jewish and the Catholic persuasion. Um, what Georgia, what Georgia uh, officials wanted, as far as a preferred immigrant stock, would have been white Protestant people, uh, Northern Europeans, who would be interested in, in working in the agricultural industry, and that's not what they got. Um, <laughs> There was a, a, a man who was Scottish who volunteered to be an immigration agent for the state of Georgia, and he went back to Scotland, went back to Aberdeen, actually, and came back with about five or 600 people. So this would have been wow. families. In about 1906 is when they arrived. They came to Port of Savannah. A lot of them came up to, to Atlanta. Port of Savannah, a lot of them came up to Atlanta in about 1906. 
Um, these were people who were primarily skilled tradesmen um, and then uh, women who worked in maybe domestic work. And when they arrived in Atlanta, there must have been some communication between the Scottish community in, in DeKalb County and the Scottish, the new Scottish community in Atlanta. And we know that um, they made plans to play soccer, to form teams <laughs> like, and play a game. Like, hey! <laughs> yeah, and so we know. I know the um, the first game that I can track was a two-two draw that was played in Lithonia on Christmas Day in 1907. And they had a uh, that was the away game for Atlanta, the home first home game that I've been able to document in the city of Atlanta, organized soccer game between a team representing Atlanta and a team representing Lithonia was held on um, the 24th of March in 1908. Wow. And that was played at the Jackson Street Showgrounds, which is yes. now where the MLK Center Yes, is. there was the circus um, like yes. grounds there. That's yes. fascinating. So they played a game there. Um, the uh, Atlanta Georgian newspaper had a write-up and a photograph of both teams. Really? Yep. Do you have that? Uh, yeah, we yes. do have a photo of that. Okay, and, I was going to uh, I'm going to take some of these pictures and share them on social media. And that, so there was the 2-2 draw in Lithonia. It didn't end as well for the Atlanta side uh, with the home match. They lost 2-1 to one to Lithonia. So. Wow. And so it was after that, basically, it's, so this was in uh, 1908. Um, you basically then, it was like, hey, this looks pretty fun. Let's see if we can organize a local league. And they played a few more games in the spring of 1908 and then reformed in um, September of 1908 to play uh, a full season. So now in the United States, play on a, uh, a spring to fall summer schedule whereas most of the world plays on a fall-to-spring-winter schedule. Historically, uh, it was soccer was played over the winter, and that's how it was played here originally. Oh. Um, and in, in the southeast, that's not a problem. Obviously, in the northeast, it's a bit more of a problem. Um, so they uh, so they reorganized in the, the fall of 1908 to, to kind of get going with the soccer league, and it promptly collapsed. Um, I think a lot of that had to do with the fact that you had um, work slowdowns in the, oh. the quarrying industry here. And so a lot of guys would have gone out uh, to find work in other quarries throughout the United States. They would just kind of take off and go and see where they could find the work. And so the pool of players dwindled. You didn't have a lot to begin with. and I was going to say, you yeah. had like two teams anyway. Yeah, so, so if you're missing a few players, you're not yeah, going to was Yeah, it was a, little, uh, it was a little, little tight there on that front. So those were the two, I guess, the two main factors that kind of started organized league play or the beginning of it. Um, two other factors that I kind of also attribute to the relative su- success would have been the arrival of um, two brothers who were actually uh, Northern Irish or Irish, and that was Tom and or John Harland and then Tom Harland, his brother. They they arrived in Atlanta around that same time. Both of them worked for the Foot and Davies Publishing Company. I think with them and with a lot of and then the other factor would have been the opening of the A.G. Spalding and Brothers Sporting Goods Store on Broad Street in downtown, and that was a big deal. So it was the first branch office in the southeast for the the, the major sporting goods store, and um, one of the the big uh, executives in uh, A.G. Spalding at the time was Thomas Cahill. And Cahill is considered the father of U.S. soccer. Really? Um, He was the person who helped organize the United States Soccer Federation. He also uh, organized the first uh, tour of an American U.S. men's team in uh, Europe against uh, Sweden, Swedish teams. And so that was the first tour. And so he was he's considered basically. And so he was a he came out of St. Louis uh, he also was involved in the formation of the first real professional soccer league, the American Soccer League in the 1920s. But um, he was a Spalding Goods sports executive. And so there was kind of, a, I think, on high to kind of push the sport, 
you know, it was something they could sell. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah you need stuff to play equipment. it. Yeah, come so buy it. so uh, so they found. Um, so basically, um, the Spalding Goods Store on Broad Street, uh, the building is no longer there. Oh, it's yeah. now the site of the Adderhold oh, Center yes, where Georgia yes, State. Yes. Um, but the the store was on the first floor, and then they allowed their offices to be used for the. Uh, for the soccer league on the second floor. And then they also sponsored with jerseys. They sponsored jerseys, trophies. Uh, they would help sponsor, you know, if they needed a, a car or a van sometimes wow. to, to travel. But is this the league that fell apart? Or this was Yeah, like- so they started, so yeah, it basically, oh. so that's been the story kind of Atlanta soccer. In trying a way. to start it, falling yes. apart, trying to start it. Yeah, so you had 1908, they start, falls apart. They, they reorganized in 1911, in the fall of 1911. Pretty much the same group of folks, the folks from Lithonia, a lot of the, the same folks involved earlier a few years. And they said, hey, this looks a little bit more promising. Actually, we probably can get more than two teams. Um, they had reached out in 1911. They played a couple games against soldiers at Fort McPherson. Oh. So that was considered, that got a lot of publicity. And, and so they started to have people show up uh, for games. They held their practices at Marist College, which is now Marist High School, but yeah. originally Marist was re- located next to the Saint- Sacred Heart yeah. Church downtown, and um, it was a uh, kind of a military boys uh, model. So they had a drill field in on the in, behind the school, and so the uh, Atlanta Soccer Football Club, as they were known, would hold their practices there. Oh wow! And they were really pushing to get uh, kids from Marist to play. They knew that they didn't have the huge immigration pool here to play so they they knew from an early period and the Harlan brothers were were two that I kind of point to is really understanding that they needed to get American kids and when I say American kids I mean white boys yes to play at the time because yeah. there was no real consideration in Jim Crow Atlanta to ever allow black boys to play and definitely not girls were not going to play that was not on their radar that you know girls or women would play soccer at that time that would change and we'll talk about that but um so uh, they realized they needed to get an American American players to really make it a success. And so they really pushed to get Marist kids to play, um, Georgia Tech students to play, um, as well as, and we'll talk a little bit later, some just uh, some of the other kids that were in and around Atlanta. So that was in 1911. They kind of limped along. Uh, they did have success in 1912. They were able to, they sent out and they were able to schedule a game against Chattanooga on uh, George Washington's birthday in 1912. That game was played in Chattanooga. Um, and that, from my record, I think is the first uh, intercity soccer match in the Southeast. So that was a game wow. representing Atlanta All-Stars, which were, it was an amalgam, amalgam yeah, of the, the, best the players. Lithonia, yeah, Lithonia and Atlanta teams. And they went up to Chattanooga. And there was a fellow up there, Archibald McClundy, who was Scottish, an engineer, and he organized a team. Uh, of uh, British players and some Americans, one of them being this guy, Tally Johnston, who was a local standout football star, American football star. The Atlanta team went up there by train and won four to nothing in 1912. And then that got a lot of press throughout the Southeast. Ah. Um, And so they were kind of like, hey, this is going really well. Um, They were also able to play a home and away match against Auburn University, which formed a team under Mike Donahue, who was their big football coach. And that team was... uh, was basically their their foot a lot of the players on the football team the Auburn football team and that was a national championship football team so any Auburn historians uh, people who are huge Auburn fans would recognize some of the names Kirk Newell was the one of the captains he played soccer and football um, he was the quarterback for one of the Auburn uh, football team but 
So they were able to play a t- team representing Auburn in 1912. Uh, the Atlanta team went there and won two to two to one barely. I think they were a little surprised by the college kids, even though they were all novices. Uh, and then a week later, uh, Auburn came back and they played. And it was a pretty highly publicized game at Piedmont Park, where uh, Atlanta won three to nothing. I think in that game. So these are adult Scottish men still yes. playing like kids from <laughs> yeah, Auburn. From Auburn, <laughs> that yes. is hilarious. Yes. Well, you know, when we see, some of them, yes, were probably old men. I'm sure in the eyes of the college students, some of them were probably in their twenties yeah, or teens, thirties, or, or I mean, yeah. not really old, but these were grown ups, so like yes. playing kids. So they felt like they had a lot of good momentum going into 1912 or coming out of 1912. So then. The fall of 1912, things don't go as well again. I think you they didn't get the turnout they were expecting. I think Lithonia, they played a few games against Lithonia and Atlanta did in the fall of 1912. Didn't really pick up. Um, but what they did, were able to do is schedule another away game. This time they were play, able to play the uh, Birmingham, Alabama All-Stars. And this game was played on February 1st, 1913 in Birmingham at Rickwood Field. And Birmingham basically wiped the floor with the Atlanta team four to nothing. And I think, and we'll just talk very briefly about, but Birmingham, um, all of the publicity that Atlanta was garnering the previous season um, in the newspapers kind of, I think, stoked a little uh, competitiveness. Oh, yeah, Birmingham and Atlanta were always, you know. And Birmingham, I mean, People were familiar with <clears throat> with that town. Uh, you know, originally it was the coal mining industry. They had imported a ton of Scottish and Welsh coal miners, British coal miners, to work uh, in and around the Birmingham district in the 1880s and 1890s. And they were playing the game back then as well. And they even established a league in 19, 1896, 1897, and were playing pretty frequently. Um, but the... The structure in Birmingham is you did have these large industrial companies, a lot of them out of Pittsburgh or out of Pennsylvania, which, and so the model that was happening in the Northeast with a lot of soccer teams, which was industrial patronage of these soccer teams, Bethlehem Steel, kind of was happening on a smaller scale in Birmingham. And so they were able to help finance the players, finance the teams, and they were able to kick off a new league in Birmingham in 1913. In the fall of 1913, but unlike Atlanta, which was scrounging for players, only had two teams. Birmingham had about six teams playing regularly, first and second. So you had a first team and a reserve team. Wow! So it was a quite a few people playing. So they had a much bigger pool to play pull from uh, as far as players go, and and I think that the level was just more organized and better. Yeah, and yeah. They, yeah. They they crushed Atlanta in 1913. They had a huge turnout, apparently, from all reports. Um, the Atlanta players and uh, organizers were pretty shocked at the response that they got in Birmingham. They had, like, a parade. They had a dinner beforehand. The parade to Rickwood Field before the game. Tons of people filling the stands at the, the baseball park. Uh, and then, you know, like I said, just kind of getting killed by them four to yeah. nothing. So. Did this light a fire under Atlanta's butt? Because I could totally see that. Yes, I mean, and that's Atlanta. what happened, yes. <laughs> and just to cut to the chase, so but in the folly, they said, hey, what's going on in Birmingham is great. We need to get yes, there. Yeah. And then it, the everybody yes. gets on board. Because that's yes. the thing with Atlanta is like, yep. we do not want to be shown up. So That's exactly it. Wow. So, in 19, so that's 1913. In the fall of 1913, the Atlanta organizers get back together. It's the old standbys. It's Atlanta and Lithonia again they're all on board they said hey we've got two more teams this time that are going to play we'll have a four-team league the georgia state league the third team was going to be john and tom harland who we mentioned earlier the two brothers both worked at foot and davies 
Foot and Davies had started a apprenticeship program for basically teenage boys. So kids, you know, at the time, you know, you finished grammar school, you probably didn't continue on into high school. These were kids kind of going into the into their careers, and they started an apprenticeship program. So they had uh, teenage uh, boys in the apprenticeship program at Foot and Davies that they pulled from to form a third team. So you had the Foot and Davies team. Um, and then the fourth team was supposed to be a team, uh, and this is kind of a throwback to one of your episodes on the Bicycle Messengers, um, was supposed to be organized by Bicycle Messenger kids with the um, Western, Western Union. Union. Get out of yes. here. Wow. Yeah, but that never really happened. That, that, that team never really came together. Um, and so they had to scramble uh, as they kind of were piecing the league together in the fall of 1913. And they eventually were able to get a, a group of uh, players out here in Stone Mountain to create a Stone Mountain team. So you had Stone Mountain, Lithonia, Atlanta, and Foot and Davies. And they, they were able to play. They played for the Georgia State League. They had a cup that was sponsored by the Spalding Brothers team. Um, and they played throughout the uh, fall winter and spring and um basically lithonia ran away with it and won the won the league in 1914 oh my god atlanta coming in second <laughs> so that was so that was success and they came out of the spring of 1914 it's like hey this is great you know we finally have wind on our backs next year is going to be great and then what happens in august of 1914 is world war one I. I was just going to say world war one yes. and then we throw in the influenza epidemic later yes. and the yeah. chaos and chaos and more chaos yeah so <laughs> world war one essentially uh you had a lot of players and these again these guys were british some of them become naturalized but a lot of them said hey they they went back to the uk actually oh. a lot of them went up to canada and enlisted in the canadian expeditionary forces and served under the Canadian military during World War One, so that we have a few records of uh, the players who who went up to Canada and enlisted there in 19, the fall of 1914. And so they say the newspaper reports um, when they're trying to reorganize the team, it's like we just can't pull oh. the people together. And then the Amer- and then there was throwing blame at the American kids. It's like, well, you guys need to do better. We're not around. And then it just didn't just didn't stick. Oh, so then it dies out until when? Yeah. Uh, well, it didn't completely die out because the other thing I neglected to say, they had the four-team adult league. They were also able to organize a grammar school league in 1914 um, of kids in uh, eighth grade boys, white boys in the uh, Atlanta Elementary School program. So there was a Atlanta Grammar School League that started in 19... 19- 13, 1914, and they played for two more years. And again, that was sponsored by, so some of the, the players would help coach or organize or officiate the games. Um, and then Spalding provided a trophy and, you know, I don't know about uniforms, but. Okay. So that ha- that lasted about another two years, but it kind of filtered out. Uh, so by 1914, 1915, soccer was pretty much dead in Atlanta. It didn't come back until after World War II, World War One, okay. and that was John Harland again, who we mentioned earlier, the Foot and Davies executive. He was able to kind of get the band back together. There was a few old school folks from the previous league who were interested. This time, they did get some buy-in from some uh, Georgia Tech students, so they had a few Georgia Tech students that were willing to play, and they were able to organize between Lithonia. An Atlanta team, and then um, they had a few other kind of one-off teams that they would play, or they would play in kind of split squad games between 1921 and 1923. Faltered a little bit, then we see life again starts um, in about 1924, and we had some new names this time. You had two Scottish brothers, James and John Ness. John Ness was a, a optometrist indicator. Um, 
both Scottish, like I said. Uh, you had um, two other brothers, um, Harry and Jack Klein, who were uh, Jewish brothers, but they were from South Africa and learned to play the game uh-huh. in South Africa before immigrating to, excuse me, to Atlanta. They worked as jewelers downtown, so they were very involved. And then a few other folks. And so they were able to form a team. Uh, the Atlanta Soccer Football Club reorganized in about 1925. Um, and they played over the next three years. Um, again, you had a team from Lithonia reorganizing. And you also had teams um, representing Fort McPherson, the 22nd Infantry, who played consistently during that time, as well as uh, a team organized at the Atlanta Federal Penitentiary. So then that's the 20s. Does the Depression affect soccer? Yeah. So one thing what happened, so that's what's happening in Atlanta as far as like organized league play. Um, In the 1920s, too, in Atlanta and throughout the state, you also had um, women start to play the game. So uh, women were playing in high school. I know Girls High had a team in 1924, 25 by that point. there were intramural. These were all played on intramural basis, the women's soccer team. But but it, it pretty much exploded in popularity, not only in Georgia but throughout the country among women's uh, colleges. So you had Wesleyan down in uh, Macon had a, a pretty big program that lasted quite a while. Um, Spelman College had a soccer program, intramural really? soccer program in 1926, 1927. But yeah, so so you started to have women play at that time as well. But again, on an intramural basis. So locally, it would be women that were in college. Yes. Or girls or high, high school or girls high. Okay. Yeah, and these are again were um, you had Spelman, which is the only, and I think Talladega, uh, is it Talladega College or University in Alabama. I think they also, that was a which is HBCU, yeah. they also So were they playing program. at Morehouse or? Morehouse, there was a push to get a, a men's team um, early in the 1930s. But, and I know that it was played among the student population as like a phys ed kind of core um, class. They would play soccer, the students would. But uh, they had pushed to create a, a men's Morehouse team because Howard was a huge um Howard had a huge soccer program really? yeah, in the 1920s. Um, and they looked to build a soccer team at Morehouse in the 1930s, but it never really took off. I they love played that an exi- Spellman had it first. That's yeah, great. Yeah, they played a Morehouse. They did play an exhibition halftime game during a football game between Morehouse and Spellman at Ponce Ballpark. Really? Uh, in 1932. But that's the only example I can really find of them. That's so up until, cool. Up until re, you know, late, much later in the 70s, you had Morehouse organized a, a team. So essentially, so yeah, soccer by, yeah, uh, by 1928, yeah, the Depression, I think that pretty much had killed it. It had killed it locally, but it kind of killed it on the national stage as well. Uh, soccer was kind of looked at as being one of the probably top four leagues in the United States, at that time, which is kind of surprising. Yeah. Football, professional football was nowhere near what it is today. Neither was basketball. So you had baseball, college football, and horse racing and boxing were the primary sports. And then soccer was making some serious inroads at the time at the national level, or at least in some of these kind of hotbed spots. But then also in colleges throughout the United States. Um, But by the 1920s, that kind of had come to an end, at least Definitely here, and then it started to filter out in the 1930s as well. Um, the United States fielded a team to the first World Cup in 1930, 
um, and did quite well because there weren't a lot of teams in the World Cup then, and uh. they also fielded a team in 1934. But at the national, that was the last time the U.S. fielded a team in the World Cup until the 1950s. So it kind of shows you how the the the, the sport had really kind of collapsed in on itself in the 19, basically the, the early 1930s. And, and the, that was the same case Story here. in Atlanta. Yeah, as when, well as in Birmingham. The, the leagues there kind of really. So when is the comeback then for Atlanta? The comeback for Atlanta as far as organized play, I mean, it never truly went away. I've found, um, again, high school kids were playing. Uh, some colleges, Riverside Military Institute had a team. Uh, McCallie prep school in Chattanooga had a soccer team that was continuing through the 1930s and 40s. But really, um, you know, we have to then look at basically the Chiefs coming in 1967. Really? Wow. So that's the big gap. That's fascinating. And with the Chiefs coming in 1967. First First professional team in Atlanta, right? To win a... uh, To win a championship or something. I remember when I interviewed the author about, um, you know, he wrote a book about just professional sports in Atlanta. I was like, this is amazing. I don't think enough people realize that. Our first championship was a soccer team. Yep, it was the Atlanta Chiefs in 1968. Now, what, isn't there some bigger story of that boom in soccer during the 60s and 70s? Yeah, it's 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 pretty fascinating. Um, I, I I as a historian, these parallels. Um, the big thing I think the real legacy of the Atlanta Chiefs um, is uh, you had um, Phil Woosnam, who is the player coach uh, of the Chiefs. He was recruited to run the team, and Phil was a teacher at one point. He was a professional soccer player too, um, but he played for a number of teams. Um, uh, in England, but he was also a teacher at heart, and Phil was big into uh, really getting. I mean, they, they it was kind of what the organizers in the teens and twenties in Atlanta were recognizing. The Chiefs saw the same thing. They were coming here. There was no real infrastructure of soccer, and they realized they had to get kids playing the sport. And that and and Phil Woosnam was a big proponent of getting the players out there, teaching the kids how to play, holding workshops. The, the wives of the players coming over with the Chiefs also would coach. And you start they started to um, – Emory is where the Chiefs practiced when they came in the 1960s. And they started to really kind of get kids involved in and around Emory um, playing pickup games. And it's at that point that they start to organize a DeKalb school league. So it's funny. Soccer starts in DeKalb in the oh, 1880s. Oh, how funny. But really, DeKalb County is the epicenter of, of wow. soccer in, in Metro Atlanta. Um, because then you have basically DeKalb Decatur Y is the um, – it starts in with the Chiefs in 1960. It's the Chiefs that kind of get that going. Really? Yeah. Wow. And so it starts in DeKalb County again in the, in the late 60s. So they, they the established the Youth League yes. in DeKalb at the same time that the professional team is yes. playing. They, they realized, like I said, they, they need to get kids playing. Um, I'm of that generation. I'm a little oh. younger. Than, I was born in 70, but I'm, I'm that generation. But you grew up in DeKalb? I, I, no, I grew up in, in Clayton County. But by, so, okay. by the, so it starts in DeKalb in 1968. By, by 1967, by 1968-69, there's there's uh, organized leagues, either YMCA or county rec leagues in Fulton County, Cobb County, Clayton County, DeKalb County, but it starts in DeKalb County. It starts in and around. Um, now so, they're playing. At, they were playing at the Fulton County Stadium. The Chiefs were yes. Yes, and I they, remember this. Okay. Yes. Now, how long were the Chiefs here? So the Chiefs were here from 1967 through 1970. 
three. Then they became the Apollos briefly uh, okay. because it was a different ownership group. It was Cousins bought the team from the Braves ownership group, which had started the Chiefs. Dick Cecil was the vice president. He was the de facto president of the Chiefs. Um, they bought the, but they by that time the Braves were looking to get out of professional soccer. It. But what happens? Why in Atlanta? Did it die then in 73 or 74? Yeah, they. I, it, I think it had just, you know, again, the, you didn't have a local ownership group that was okay. willing to kind of continue. I know that uh, Phil Woosnam pushed to really kind of uh, get a new team back, and eventually they did in the 79. Dick Cecil was involved in that, but this time with Ted Turner. Okay. So you had the Chiefs 2 that kind of Oh, operated. so they were Chiefs 2 in yes, 79. Yeah, yeah, through the early, early 80s. And where were they playing? They also played at Atlanta Fulton County State. Okay. Stadium. So then, do we have another gap until we get MLS? Uh, there was some. Yeah, you had indoor soccer. Oh, um, yeah. okay. So the Atlanta Chiefs did have, the later Chiefs had an indoor soccer. Um, like a professional indoor yes, soccer league? They had a, yeah, they had the professional. So you had the Atlanta Attack, which was later in the 80s. Um, you had a women's team, the Atlanta Beat, in the 90s and 2000s. There wow. was a couple versions of that. Um, and then, of course, the Silverbacks, um, which people may recognize, the Atlanta Silverbacks uh, formed out of a previous team called the Ruckus, um, but it was out of the A-League. And so that was in the 90s and then into the 2000s. The Silverbacks operated on and off uh, under a number of different leagues and ownerships up until about 2014, I believe. Really? And yeah, where do just, they play? They played at the Silverbacks Park. It's over there. Um right off of 285 and Pleasantdale Road. Oh. It's kind of sandwiched in there up where the uh, Spaghetti Junction is. Yeah. The stadium is still there. Fascinating. And I, w- I will say, too, so we talked about the Chiefs. One other thing that's, um, I think, very important with the Chiefs, um, we talked about the youth leagues. Also, so they started youth soccer. The other thing that started pretty much with the Chiefs or the year before was the um, uh, the ADASL, which is the Adult Amateur League. So there's the... Atlanta District Amateur Soccer League is what the ADSL stands for. And there was a number of teams that played beginning in 1967-68 with that league. And that still continues to this day as well. And it's just like pickup soccer almost? Yeah, it's amateur. Yeah, but it's pretty structured and it continues to this day. Really? Pretty competitive. Maybe a lot of players that played in college, you know, and... Um, and I will say, one of the early teams in the ADASL, which is fascinating to me, was a team from the Atlanta Federal Penitentiary had a team. No, yeah. really? Dick Woosnam, they, they, or Phil Woosnam, excuse me, Dick Cecil and Phil. Phil Woosnam, uh, they held some uh, some soccer workshops at the prison, and the prison started a team again in the early 70s. Really? Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's so, wild. So that's pretty fascinating. So this has taken us now, we're in the 2000s, Yep. and this is when we get MLS. Yeah. So but MLS had started earlier in other MLS cities. MLS started right after the, the push. So when uh, the U.S. got the World Cup in 94, the North American Soccer League had folded uh, prior to that. And so one of the conditions was getting the uh, World Cup in 94 was reestablishment of a professional soccer league. Oh. Um, and so that's when MLS started the year, two years later, 96. There had been off and on, you know, calls for Atlanta, uh, but... There was not, you know, and not until Blank finally was able to. And that year it. was? Uh, I think they announced the team in 2015. Don't hold me to that. No, but, but it's, yeah. down, which so. I, I'm, to me, it feels like a blip. Yeah. That, uh, it feels like it just and So happened. you had a two-year kind of runway to kind of getting yeah. the team off the ground. And they, they did a, a great job with it. I know. You know it's so, so popular. Yeah. I mean, it's 
so popular. It has such a, and I, I don't know, if, you know, again, I'm not a sports person in Atlanta, but I think what happens in Atlanta is everyone's from somewhere else. And so there's never been this like thing behind mm-hmm. a team I see, yeah. right? Everybody brings their own teams. Right. But it's like with soccer, it's like a fresh start, you know? Yeah. It's like, oh, I'm from all these other places, but like everyone's behind yeah. Atlanta United. Which yeah, is- they were beneficiaries of that, you know, to your point. I think the Thrashers never really got that because you had, you know, Again, it's like you said. It's like you know, people who are Bruins fans or Rangers. Yeah, if you're fans, a hockey fan, a you're a, exactly. And I think but, the same but, with football. It's a yeah. very entrenched, especially in the Northeast. You know, it's like my great grandpa got tickets to these whatever. Mm-hmm. You come with that. But soccer, yep. nobody has that deep seated no. soccer family. They legacy. may have a team they follow in Europe yeah. or wherever, but yeah, that's kind of. But for their local team, it was something that they were able to latch on to. That's so interesting. So, yeah. So that's that's pretty much the history there, and it's you know it's it is it's it, it is fascinating that you know when that when say when um, they announced MLS would be coming to Atlanta, there was a lot of negative talk about Atlanta, Atlanta being a bad sports town, Atlanta will never take to soccer and things of like that. But it, Atlanta has taken to soccer, and I think they you know it was definitely tougher back when the period we were talking in the early twentieth century. But I think the Chiefs showed those a success, and they really built a foundation for what I think Atlanta United is, oh, is benefiting from Oh, I today. see what you're saying. So that yeah. all started there, and that's yes. why we've been so successful. I think so. I think that there's a huge – I think I think that's the infrastructure. The Chiefs and the older organizers, they had no infrastructure. They had no real broad player pool to, to, to draw from um, that kids who had grown up playing the game – the Chiefs did not have that. They created that. So by the time now, I mean, we're seeing a lot of kids coming out of the homegrowns for Atlanta United now who grew up in in Atlanta, you know, I mean, and, and, and are Which is beneficiaries pretty, yeah, right. of having, again, a, a strong youth system now in and around Metro Atlanta that's producing pretty good soccer wow, players. Wow, that's... Would you these stories because you said you were writing specifically about something? Do you do you have a blog or a website? Because no. I mean, I see it on Twitter, <laughs> and that's why it's just like it's yeah. just your personal Twitter. I you know. know, every once in a while, there's a soccer story, and I've been lazy with that too. <laughs> I, I I'll be honest, the the pandemic took it out of me, I yeah. guess, a little bit. I had done a lot more research prior to that point. Well, one day you're going to put all of this onto a website. Yeah, so I do need to do that. And then I, I'll I, share it. And I, yeah, and I got, I owe an apology to a lot of the people I've reached out to that I've like, hey, I'm doing this work. And I still haven't written the book, so I need to write the book. Well, that's what I say, yeah. and the book. Yeah. We'll just we'll do another episode when that comes out. Yeah. Well, thank you for doing this. Thank I'm you very much. So excited! It was more, even more interesting than I thought it would be. So I can't wait for everyone to hear it. Yeah, and if uh, if people, you know, if it, if this is kind of if people have any interest, if they want to or reach out to me, a story. Yes. Yeah, I'll put your contact information. Sure, so if you they can have reach some... out to me, and um, I'm more than happy to to talk or to share what I have, or you know, so. Thank you. Yes, thank you. So there you have it, the story of soccer in Atlanta. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Remember to leave a rating and or a review wherever you listen to the podcast. If you have um, some questions or some history you want to share with Patrick, I have put his information in the show notes. Um, There's also a link in the show notes to my Patreon page where you can support the work that I do. I hope everyone has a great weekend, and I'll talk to you next week.